Good morning, church. We'll be in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 this morning. You can turn there if you would. Let's open our time together in prayer. Father, thank you so much for this church. Thank you for the chance we have to gather as your body. Thank you for the goodness that it is to worship you. And we know that we can do that only because of your grace and your mercy. We stand before you, not in our own merit or because of our own ability, but simply because of your grace. And so we do thank you for that immeasurable gift. And Father, as we do come, we pray that that grace would be forefront in our minds this morning, um, that it would give us a posture of worship and of gratitude before you, and that you would help us as we look at this passage to understand um, the message that you have put in these pages, and that we would understand more about you, that we would come away with a greater appreciation of your love for us, and a desire to walk faithfully with you. So we thank you again for this time, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, during my study this week, as I prepared for this message, I came across a satirical acknowledgement page. So this is the page that comes in the front of many books, where the book is dedicated to a particular person or individual or pet, something of that nature. And so this, uh, this author wrote this as his acknowledgement page. He said, there's a new trend among authors to thank every famous person for inspiration, non-existent assistance, and or some casual reference to the author's work. Authors do this to pump themselves up. So on the off chance that this is helpful, I wish to thank the following people. The Emperor of Japan and the Queen of England for promoting literacy. Bruce Willis, who called me one day and said, hey, you're a pretty good writer. Albert Einstein, who inspired me to write about nuclear weapons. General George Armstrong Custer, whose brashness at the Little Bighorn taught me a lesson in judgment. Don DeLillo and Joan Didion, whose books are always before and after mine on bookshelves, and whose names always appear before and after mine in almanacs and many lists of American writers. Thanks for being there, guys. Julius Caesar for showing the world that illiterate barbarians can be beaten. Paris Hilton, whose family hotel chain carries my books in their gift shops. And last but not least, Albert II, King of the Belgians, who once waved to me in Brussels at a royal procession as it moved from the palace to the parliament building, messing up traffic for half an hour and thereby forcing me to kill time by thinking of a great plot to dethrone the king of the Belgians. <laughs> there may be many more people I could thank, but time, space, and modesty compel me to stop here. <laughs> well, Paul may not be quite as satirical in his account this morning, but he does have an edge of that satire and sarcasm as he talks to the Corinthians this morning. And, and his concern is not necessarily acknowledgments, but it's an issue called letters of recommendation or letters of commendation. And, and this maybe has more to do with an endorsement section of a book or a product where somebody recommends it and we're prone to buy that product based on their recommendation. But the reason this all comes about in chapter 3 as we pick up is because of what he talked about in chapter 2. 
And so as you remember where we ended in chapter 2, he actually levied some pretty serious criticisms against the speakers in Corinth. And, and for time, we had to sort of squeeze that in on the end there, but I don't want us to miss the gravity of what he accused those men of. Remember, he said that we are not like many peddling the word of God or hucksters making a profit off the word of God, but, from, but as from sincerity, as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. And so remember, what he's accusing those speakers of is adulterating the product, adulterating the message. A, a huckster or a peddler during that time was someone who took a legitimate product and then lessened its quality, watered down the product, and then sold it at a higher price. And so he's accusing these speakers at Corinth of doing just that, of, of taking the, the glory and the truth of the gospel message and watering it down and then selling it for a profit. And he says, we are not like those individuals. We do not peddle the word of God, but we speak from sincerity. And so the natural question that comes as he makes that claim is, well, Paul, how can you claim that? How can you know that you are speaking in sincerity, that you have the true and real gospel message, and that the gospel message isn't what these individuals are seeking to peddle or to sell at a profit? How can we know that we can trust you? And so that's his theme throughout this entire chapter. What is the mark or the sign of an authentic ministry versus an inauthentic ministry? And so Paul gives us those signs of an authentic ministry as he works through this passage. And that fits in the theme of what he's been talking about all through 2 Corinthians thus far. But he begins with verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some, letters of commendation to you or from you? And so here's this principle of letters of commendation or letters of recommendation. And, and in ancient culture, this was a common practice that speakers would have. They would carry with them physical letters that describe their, their prowess with the spoken word or their ability to entertain audiences or, or to communicate truth well or, or to remain orthodox as they did so. And so it was a common practice if someone came to a town to pull out those letters as validation or justification for their ability to do the ministry that they said they could do. Now, while Paul is critical of this practice here or speaks of it in satire, he also used this practice, especially early in his career as, as an apostle. Remember, he was converted uh, out of someone who was persecuting the church. And so the first time he walked into a church and said, hey, I'm here to preach the gospel, everyone was a little concerned at first, right? And so Paul used letters of recommendation from the other apostles in order to validate the proof of his conversion and his ability to preach the word. And so he used this in his past, even as he's critical of it here. And so, as Paul claims to be a sincere messenger of the gospel and someone who has the truth of God's word, the question that he's being asked are, do you need a letter of commendation in order to prove that? How do we know that you bear and carry the authentic gospel message? And Paul says, I don't need to look to the praise of men. I don't need men to validate or justify the message that I am saying. I have a greater way to authenticate and to validate my message. That's what he goes into in verses 2 and 3. You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, 
not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So what does Paul mean by that? He means that his ministry is validated not by the approval of his skill or people saying what a great speaker and minister he is, but his ministry is authenticated by the fact that there is a church now in Corinth as a result of his ministry. There was a response to the gospel message that he presented there that resulted in a church being planted and now flourishing. Now, of course, we know that this church is weak. They are cowardly. They are fickle. They are fleshly, and they struggle. But the presence of a church in Corinth is proof that God and His Spirit is working through Paul as a legitimate apostle. Now, we're going to talk about the marks of that church in just a minute, but I want us to pause and not miss that point for a moment. God's presence, His work in this world, is accomplished through the church. Do you realize that? Do you realize that that's God's work and His ministry on this earth? It's the church. God's not working through politicians primarily. He's not working through social justice warriors. He's not working through social media. He's working through us, through the church. And God cares about all of those things, right? We influence politics, but it comes from the church. We influence social justice and culture and things like that, but it comes through the church. God's work always occurs through the church. This is the vehicle of His work and what He's doing on this earth. And so that's why we want you here. We don't want you to come to church because it makes you a good person. We don't want you to come to church because it saves you. We don't want you to come to church so you feel better about yourself. But we want you to be in church because this is how you participate in what God is doing in this earth. Isn't that amazing? That's what we have the opportunity to be a part of. And so God cares about the church, and the presence of the church is proof of His work in in a group of people or in a culture. But then Paul goes on to talk about what that church ought to look like. Look at verse 3. Being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So Paul takes this metaphor that the people are are talking about, and he flips it on his head. He's saying, I don't carry physical letters of recommendation, but you, as a church, are a letter of recommendation from Christ. As you represent Christ, you bear testimony and witness to the authenticity of the work that He is doing within your midst. The mark of a church that God is using, and that God is blessing, and that is faithful to Him, is their allegiance to Christ. So when it says you are a letter of Christ, what does that mean? How are we as a church a letter of Christ? Well, I think it comes down to two areas, and and this goes for our personal lives as well as for our life as a church and what we stand for as a church culture. First of all, it comes in our conduct. Does our conduct reflect the conduct of Christ? Do we stand for the the version of sexuality and marriage that Christ affirms in His Word? Do we love others and care for them the way Christ cared for others in His circle? Do we use the the sanctified speech with our friends and family 
that Christ would have used with his. Do we reflect the fact that Christ is living within us, that we are a temple of the Holy Spirit in the way we interact with one another and the way we live? That's true for ourselves, and that's true for our church culture as well. But the second is also in our testimony, in our words. Do we speak and do we testify to Christ in what we say and what we preach? And so, are we gathering as a church on Sunday mornings for just a feel-good message that gives me the encouragement I need for the week? Are we gathering just so we can be a do-gooder and go out in the streets and, and do good things? Or are we gathering as a church to celebrate the gospel of Jesus Christ, the fact that we were sinners, that we were lost, and that we are now redeemed? Do we bear the shame of the cross in the salvation that we testify and hold to? And is what we say as a church consistent with what Christ says in His Word? Do we hold to that standard, and is that our barometer of faithful ministry? And so notice that these things are are independent of those worldly measures of success. They're independent of how many people come to the church. Paul's not concerned about how large this church in Corinth is. He's not concerned about how beautiful their buildings are. He's not concerned about how much money they have. What he is concerned about is what kind of letter they represent. And are they representing Christ in their conduct and in their teaching as a church? And that's an important item for us to grasp as well as we think about our own lives, and as we think about our culture as a church. When people from the outside look at us, when they interact with us as individuals, when they see this church, is the message they hear consistently Christ, the gospel, and the truth of what we all confess and believe. And that's convicting for all of us to think about in our personal lives, as well as how we as a church conduct ourselves. So notice how Paul views himself being manifest that you are a letter of Christ cared for by us. And so Paul's not apart from this process. He views himself as a part of it, but the letter is coming from Christ. And Paul's role in this is merely to steward and to shepherd it, to make sure that that message gets across to those individuals. Written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God on the tablets, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. And here's where he begins to introduce this concept of the new covenant that we're going to see throughout this passage. Paul takes the idea based in Ezekiel and in Jeremiah that that part of the new covenant is God replacing our heart of stone, our dead heart of stone, with a heart of flesh, that he now writes the law on our hearts. And that's a sign of the new covenant. And he begins to speak that way even here in verse 3. And so in verse 4, he deals with a natural um, outflow or consequence of this. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And so the, the criticism that could come from Paul for a statement like that is if you don't need the commendation of other people, if you're not looking for validation from those around you, then maybe you're sort of a rogue agent. You're just out there saying, I justify myself, and, and I'm good enough to do this work on my own. I don't need anyone else to validate me. And of course, when we're reading this in context, that sounds crazy, because we know that's not what Paul is saying. 
But he takes the time to explain that's not what he's saying. And in fact, that's the exact opposite of what Paul means when he says that. Such confidence we have, not in ourselves, but through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. Now, this word for adequate means to be competent, to be worthy, or to be good enough for the task that you've been given. And so Paul says, I'm not competent, I'm not adequate, I'm not worthy enough on my own to do the task that God has given me to do. In fact, my adequacy comes only from God. And so maybe this is a backwards way to think about it or not the the normal way to think about it, but I find that incredibly encouraging. I find this passage one of the most encouraging passages in all of Scripture. Because how many of us have felt inadequate to do the ministry or the task that God has called us to do? How many of us feel inadequate in caring for our elderly family members or caring for the children that God has given to us or caring for the teens and the college students that are in our homes? Everyone has felt inadequate to do those tasks that God has called them to do. How many of us have felt inadequate to do the ministry, the teaching, the leading, the service that God has called us to do? Everyone has had that sense of inadequacy. And in in essence, what Paul's saying here is good. It's good that you feel inadequate. That actually should be a comfort to you. You shouldn't feel adequate to do the work that God has called you to do. If you did, that would be arrogance. That would be pride that was speaking in that moment. And so as we look at the things that God has called us to do and we feel that sense of inadequacy, that should be a comfort to us. Because our hope to do these tasks doesn't come from our ability or our talents. Our hope to do these tasks comes from the Lord. And so there's two applications that I want us to think about with that. The first is the, the response against pride. That if we ever feel a sense of pride coming into our hearts or creeping into our thinking about the ministry that's being accomplished, that should be shunned as quickly as possible. There's no place for pride in the Christian ministry. There's no place for pride in the church. What's done here is all done because of God, and it's all for His glory. It's never because of what we can do or we can accomplish. And so maybe that's the obvious application. But the other way I want us to think about this is at times we are tempted um, out of passivity or out of that feeling of inadequacy to resist the call to serve. Well, I can't serve in this way or I can't minister in this way because I'm not adequate. And the truth is, no one is adequate for that service. And so sometimes we resist that call to serve God and to walk with Him because of that feeling of inadequacy, when in reality that the presence of our inadequacy is a sign that we ought to be serving and we ought to be following the Lord to do those things. Now, qualification for ministry is an important thing, and and Paul, the same Paul who wrote this, also gives us the qualifications for elders and for deacons and for those who step into ministry, and so it is important to have those qualifications in place. But even as we step into those roles, it's with the understanding that we are inadequate to do the work that God has called us to do, and we can only do these things if we are empowered and strengthened by His Spirit. And so we resist pride but we also don't have that false sense of humility that says, I can't do anything because I'm worthless and I'm inadequate. Your adequacy comes from God. And so if you say you are inadequate, 
that means you're devaluing the work that God has done in your life. So hopefully that's clear and makes sense. So now Paul changes his direction and his focus, and he goes into a description of the new covenant in verses 7 through 11. And in these verses, he's describing in a midrashic form um, the Old Testament stories that we read in Exodus, of of Exodus 19 and 33 and 34 where he's talking about Moses on Mount Sinai and his interaction with with the people there. And at first, this feels like it's a change in direction. He was talking about our adequacy for ministry. He was talking about being a letter for Christ. And then he goes in to talk about this this new covenant versus old covenant. And so at, at first, that can feel like a strange change that he's going into there. But hopefully as we work through this, you're going to see Paul's thinking as he walks through this passage and and how it fits perfectly with what he's talking about in terms of our adequacy for ministry. So let's read verses 7 through 11 together. But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory, so that the sons of Israel could could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory. For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, how much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory? For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, how much more that which remains is in glory. So what's Paul doing here as he talks about the old covenant and the new covenant? Well, Let's look at the, his description of the Old Covenant first. Now, remember, this is, as I said, this is a description of the events that happened in Exodus. And he's describing the glory that came with the Old Covenant. And so I know this was a couple of months ago, but you remember the description of God's glory that was given in Exodus, right? I mean, it's stunning. Exodus 19, where the people are gathered around Mount Sinai, and, and there's that instruction that the mountain is holy, and if you so much as touch the mountain, you will die right? There there was an earthquake that shook the ground. There was fire on the mountain. There was smoke. There was thunder and there was lightning. And the people were so terrified that they said, God can't even speak to us because we will die. Do you remember that? And then do you remember when Moses went up on the mountain and God spoke to Moses face to face? And Moses said, show me your glory. And God showed him his glory. And as a result, what happened? Moses came down off the mountain and his face shone. And it shone with so much glory that the people couldn't even look at it. It was like looking at the sun. That's how much glory came from being exposed to God's presence. So why is Paul talking about all this? Why is he talking about all of this glory? Well, notice how he describes that old covenant. What are the words he uses to describe it? Verse 7, if the ministry of death, and a ministry of condemnation, and the ministry of the law. So it's a ministry of death, it's a ministry of condemnation, and it's given by the law. So think about that. What could the Old Covenant produce? The Old Covenant was based on our works. It was based on our righteousness. And what the Old Covenant shows is that none of us can be righteous. That's why it's a ministry of condemnation. The law sits as a judge to show us that we cannot earn our salvation on our own. Our works are meaningless when it comes to salvation. If any of us were responsible to save ourselves with our own merit, we would all 
fall short. That's what the law shows us. And so the result when we are condemned is that we die. It is a ministry of death. That's what the old covenant shows us. And so if this covenant that was based in condemnation and was based in death had that much glory, how much more glory is a part of the new covenant? Because think about what the new covenant authors, how how does he describe it here? It is the ministry of the Spirit. It is a ministry of righteousness. And it's a ministry of life. And so in the new covenant, as we depend upon Christ's righteousness, not our own, we are given life rather than death. And so if this ministry of condemnation and of death resulted in limited glory, how much more glory will be a part of this new covenant that is based in life and is based in the righteousness that we are given, not because of our own abilities, but because of Christ's imputed righteousness. And so there's almost a a statement of faith there. We could see the glory of the old covenant. We could see the glory, or, or we can imagine the glory on Mount Sinai. But sometimes we miss the glory of the new covenant, don't we? It doesn't feel as glorious, and and we wish we could have a Mount Sinai experience. And Paul is telling them the glory that accompanies this new covenant is even greater than the glory that we saw with the old covenant. And so that's the argument that that he's making here. And so I appreciate you walking with me through all of those details. And it is important because I think this is Paul's point with it. Because what is true of salvation is also true of the way that we serve. It's also true of the way in which we do ministry. Okay, so, so if, if our salvation, when it was based on our works and our efforts and our talents and our abilities, resulted in death and condemnation and just limited glory, what do you think our ministry that's done, purely out of our talents and efforts and ability, will result in? It results in death and limited glory, Right? But if in the new covenant, our salvation, which is dependent upon Christ's righteousness and his ability to save us, produces so much more glory, then how much more will our, our service, which is done through the empowerment and the adequacy that Christ provides, result in even more glory? Do you see the connection that Paul is making there? What's true of our salvation is also true of the way in which we serve. So Paul is making an argument that we are not adequate in our own abilities to do the work that God has called us to do, to do the life that He has called us to do. We are dependent upon the Spirit, and He says that's a good thing, because look at the glory that the Spirit can produce. If your talents and abilities and and your efforts in the Old Covenant could produce this much glory, imagine the glory that is available to us in the New Covenant when we serve and we minister completely dependent upon Christ and His Spirit to empower us and to do the work. Do you see the picture he's painting? I'm not sure. I think Jen's got it. That's it. (laughs) Right, it's it's a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful picture of how ministry functions and ought to be done. That when we are empowered by Christ and by the Spirit, God is glorified immensely, far beyond what we could possibly accomplish in our own talents and abilities. And so what's the result of that? If this is who our God is, if this is what he's called us to in ministry, what's the result? Look at verse 12. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech 
And we are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading. But their minds were hardened, for until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. We are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So verse 12 gives us the conclusion. Therefore, having such a hope. The new covenant is hope. The old covenant is death and condemnation. In the new covenant, we have hope. It's not based on our efforts. It's not based on our abilities but it's based on our God and the righteousness that he provides. And so because of that hope, we are motivated to testify and to bear witness to what he has done boldly. And so remember that this is all being talked about in in the shame of the cross, in the embarrassment of the cross. Remember from last week, we talked about the victory parade or the victory, the triumphal parade that the Romans would take through the city. And Paul views himself not as the leading general, not as a member of the army, but who? The captives who are being led along in shame and embarrassment with insults and derision being hurled from the crowd upon them. And that's what we are as we walk through this life. We bear the shame of the cross. The world doesn't understand the message of the gospel. It appears as foolishness to them. But for us, it is our hope. It is the only hope that we have. And so as we bear witness to this new covenant, we have this hope. And so we use great boldness in our speech. We use great boldness in our speech. And so knowing the truth of this new covenant, knowing the truth that God is at work in us, that we are empowered by the Holy Spirit, that we bear that authentic ministry of Christ-likeness, we are bold in our testimony to the work that God is doing. We bear faithfully the witness of Christ and His Word, even though the rest of this world doesn't understand that message and doesn't understand what we're talking about. And so as we come away from this passage, um, we'll be looking at that second, uh, the second half of that conclusion, verses 16 or 17 and 18 on a Wednesday night in a couple weeks to come. So as we conclude and we think about this this passage, um, I do want you to evaluate the letter you are of Christ. I want you to evaluate how your life looks and, and the picture of Christ that people get if they look at you. Do they see you as a faithful witness to what Christ has done in your actions and in your testimony? And is that true of us as a church as well? And then I want you to think about the glory that comes with the new covenant and the glory that is available to you as members of that new covenant. And are you bearing testimony to that new covenant with hope and with boldness because of what you know is true in that? So let's close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for this passage. It is rich with meaning, it is rich with theology, and it is rich with application. And Father, as we think about um, the call that you've placed upon us to be a letter of Christ that the world would read, we recognize that often we fall far short of that standard. And often when the world looks at the letter of our life, they see a, a fleshly, weak, and fickle person. And yet we recognize that that's who we are apart from you, 
and that even in that state, you saved us because of your love and your mercy for us. And so, Father, we pray for your forgiveness and for your help as we seek to walk faithfully with you and to bear testimony to uh, the work that you've done and to your word. Now, as we move into our time of communion, as we celebrate the new covenant with this ordinance, which is the mark of the new covenant, we pray that you would help us to use it as a time to celebrate the work that you've done in our lives, to celebrate the salvation we enjoy and the sanctification we have with you. And so we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.